Let's take our Bibles, if you would please, and open them to Revelation chapter 17. I have a question for you. How many of you that are keeping up now with our study in the book of Revelation have found things now making a little bit more sense and you're able to understand what we're talking about? Oh, half of you. Well, okay. Then I'm going to have to diligently get back into this and try to get the other half of you up to speed somehow uh, so you'll understand it a little bit better. But one of the things that happens is uh, people get dropped down into the book of Revelation by you know, preachers. You're, we're preaching on other subjects, and you make a reference to the book of Revelation, and so you go over there, and you kind of get dropped into the middle of something, and it doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. Revelation is definitely a book that must be taken in its context. And we're always talking about context when we're preaching. Make sure that you get Scripture within the context of what is said. And Revelation is somewhat different, we recognize, because it doesn't always follow a chronological order. Sometimes we're in order, but then all of a sudden the Scriptures will drop us back into something that we've talked about before, into something previously that's going on. And then we might find it actually sends us forward into something that we haven't yet talked about or explained something that's going to come. And so uh, we always have to look at this in the context. And so what we're trying to do here is break things down. We're taking little bits of this and kind of chewing it up. And that's why it takes us a little bit long to get through it. But chapter 17 is one of those chapters that do require some knowledge of what has been previously studied. Because if you don't have the background, then you will struggle to understand this. For example, the the scriptures we're looking at tonight, verses 7 through 18, make much more sense if you've been back through chapter 13 and heard the study that we did there. So that's why we go back. We look at chapter 13 again, as we did last week, to help us understand what's being said here. And thankfully, if you're really interested in the book of Revelation, we do have the sermons, and we have CDs for that. So the gentleman in the back would be happy to hook you up with whatever you need. And uh, they're looking at each other, find out, gentlemen, I, we don't understand that. Um, but they have, they have that capability, or you can download these from the Internet if you like. Well, let's look at our verses for tonight. We have a rather lengthy portion of Scripture to read again. I think we do need to do this because it keeps everything together. So if you look at verse number 7, it says, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen and one is and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful." And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. 
And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, thee shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now look at verse number 18 once again. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now the great city is the city of Babylon, and it represents here ecclesiastical Babylon. There are two Babylons, and they're intertwined throughout these scriptures, and sometimes it's hard for us to divide when John is speaking or writing about ecclesiastical Babylon and when he's speaking of political Babylon. Well, here we're dealing with the ecclesiastical side, and this part of chapter 17 tells us how that ecclesiastical Babylon will be destroyed. The next chapter, chapter 18, primarily speaks of political Babylon, economic Babylon, and it also shall be destroyed. And the last gasp for that part of the kingdom is just before the battle of Armageddon. But for now, we're concerned with ecclesiastical Babylon, and this is the huge organization that encompasses all of the world's religions. It has apostate Christianity at its head, and at the head of apostate Christianity is the Roman Catholic Church. This is the compromising church that all throughout its history has had a thirst for political power, and she gains that by swearing allegiance to the Antichrist. So what we're speaking here is of the chief daughter of the great whore. She's loved for a while, but then her purpose runs out. And when her purpose is done, then the political side of the kingdom turns on her and destroys her. So we've seen the rise of ecclesiastical Babylon, and this is the fall of it. The rise has taken 4,500 years up to today. And when we come to the tribulation period, it'll have its greatest spike you might say, in power and authority, but then it will fall. And it will come quickly, just like the Titanic goes down. The clerics of Catholicism will either abandon her and become the new priest of the God Antichrist, or those priests will suffer the wrath of the political kingdom that she helped to build. So here we find find an, an amazing scene as John sees it, and it stupefies him. So that he says in verse number 6 that, or it says there that he marvels with astonishment. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that the church is built upon the foundation of Jesus and the apostles. And the apostle John is one of those apostles. And he with 11 men helped to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Christ. And so here John sees this and he's amazed He sees into the future, and this worship has been so perverted by Roman Catholicism, the hatred that's prevalent, the greed, the thirst for power, it rules in the church rather than the glory of God. And so this church has been responsible for murders, for thefts, idolatries, blasphemies, and John is amazed that all of that was done in the name of Christ whom he knew. But I'm sure as he sees this, he's also thrilled Because this satanic gross perversion has been consumed or will be consumed by those which she committed her whoredoms with. And so here is fitting justice. John sees the vengeance of God and so he knows that God still still reigns. So we're looking here at how this happens. How does political or rather ecclesiastical Babylon fall? What is it that brings down the great whore? 
Well, we spoke last week about the alliance between the great whore and and the political Babylon. And uh, we have here uh, the the alliance with the Antichrist, the description of the alliance, which includes the kings of the earth. And the alliance, of course, is based upon religion because religion is a glue that holds people together like no other. Find a common cause in a religion where people agree and you can overcome just about anything. Barriers that divide are broken down. And so in this case, the common cause is hatred for all things that are righteous. The apostate church is very good at what it does. It knows how to torture, how to extort, how to mutilate, how to murder anyone who disagrees. And so all God-haters find in her the organizational skills that they need for the systematic destruction of God's people. Now the Antichrist hates Christianity. And he uses apostate Christianity to squelch the opposition. In chapter 12, we learn there that God chooses 144,000 special witnesses, 12,000 out of each of the tribes of Israel. They go out into the world, and perhaps there are millions of people that are one to Christ through their witness. And so the Antichrist goes after them with a vengeance. They're Jews. He hates the nation of Israel. And so God has to protect Israel from destruction. And there is a purpose for that. There is a purpose for his protection, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. So the alliance is between the whore, the Antichrist, and ten kings that are yet to be revealed. And so the Antichrist rises out of the world's seventh kingdom, which is a revived Roman Empire, and he comes out and he makes himself known with this devilish counterfeit resurrection. He counterfeits the things of Christ, so he captivates the world with his lying signs and his sorceries and his demonic miracles. And there are ten kings that throw their support behind him. And they're unified in one purpose, like-minded with one goal. They intend to overthrow God and his people and to rid the world of both. Now, everything I've just told you is shorthand for verses 7 through 13. So if you can't understand my shorthand then you need to go get a copy of the last message so you can understand it. So we're going to move on tonight to the second part of this, which is the destruction by the allies. In verse number 15, it says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. There is a peculiar aspect to church-state relationships. Both see the other as a necessary evil. Now, when Christ comes to reign upon the earth, his people gladly receive him as king. I mean, there are no suspicions of him. He loves his people, and they love him. Their goals are the same. They are one in mind. Their thinking is united, and so they don't do anything. God's people will never do anything but lovingly and willingly obey because their hearts are perfectly knit together with Christ. So if you claim to be a Christian and you have any reluctance for Christ to reign over you, if you have trouble with his lordship, if you're unwilling to submit to Christ's authority, then it means your heart hasn't been changed. And there are many people, just as we've been discussing on Sunday mornings, that claim that they know Christ. They say, we know him, but they continue in sin, and they communicate in evil ways. They slander other members of the church, with gossip. And those are characteristics of people who have a false faith. 
means that nothing has truly happened in their hearts because salvation always requires submission to the lordship of Christ. There is no other type of salvation. It always results in submission to the lordship of Christ. But when you take false Christianity with unregenerate people that are in charge and you combine that with secular government that has other unregenerate people in charge and both of them want to be the singular authority in charge, then what happens? Well, they're always looking for a way to kill the other off. And this is what happens. So the history, it's looking at Roman Catholicism, for instance, is one of using uh, political leaders for power and to advance their agenda. And the history of secular governments that have joined with Roman Catholicism has been for the purpose of using religion to help them tighten their grip on the entire mess. When the Roman Catholics controlled Europe, there was always a tug of war that was going on between the popes and the kings. One of those tugging matches actually caused a rift in Catholicism that has not been healed until this day. Attempts are being made even while we speak to try to heal that rift and it will be put back together. If not before the tribulation, it will happen during the tribulation period that this division will come back together, will be mended. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Let me tell you, I'm talking about when Henry VIII renounced the authority of the Pope and broke away. And what we have here in the beginnings of the Church of England was a sordid tale of lust and adultery. Henry VIII had married Catherine of Spain. And that was a political move that was common at the time. Leaders of different countries would intermarry and that would help give power. But Henry VIII had married Catherine of Spain, but he fell in love with, or maybe I should say he fell in lust with someone else. He fell in love with Anne Boleyn. And so he went to the Pope and asked to be granted a divorce. But the Pope would not grant him a divorce. And that's a whole other story about how the Popes can change the Word of God and somehow they got the authority to grant divorces out of it. They don't have that authority. But Henry knew that he needed to go to the Pope, or at least he thought that he should. And so he attempted that, but the Pope refused to grant him a divorce. Thomas Cromwell, who was the Prime Minister of England at that time, taunted Henry about it. And he said, well, if... You succumb to the popes of Rome if you give in to their power, then that means that the king of England does not have as much power as the pope. Well, that did it for Henry VIII. He decided that he was just going to throw off the yoke of the pope's authority and walk away from it, and thus was born the Church of England. Now, that is a very inauspicious beginning for a church, isn't it? But doesn't the Bible say that corruption breeds corruption? You're never going to bring good fruit out of a bad tree. And that's the case with these churches. So here we find this very same situation with the ten kings. They come to the place where they hate the whore. So we see, first of all, they detest her. There's this gnawing pain in their bellies every time they have to listen to a papal mass. Pope goes out on the balcony of St. Peter's, and there in the plaza before him, there are tens of thousands of people. And there's a huge influence that the Pope wields and the Roman Catholic Church wields over people. Verse number 15 says that there are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues that are under her control. And the core, uh, the, the ecclesiastical Babylon, led up by the Roman Catholic Church, sits on top of that. The Roman Catholic Church is the top chicken in the pecking order. She's the alpha female. 
And quite frankly, the ten kings are sick and tired of some old man wearing a beanie and a dress giving people orders. So they're ready to throw off control. Now here are two people that got in bed together because it was convenient for both. There was no love between them in the beginning. And whatever suspicious affection that they might have had for one another has now turned into full-blown animosity. And so the kings hate her. She's the woman scorned. She no longer has this political house to live in. And so these ten kings are going to cut her off at the knees. The second thing that these kings do is they disgrace her. These shall hate the war and whore and shall make her desolate and naked. Making her naked is the same as uncovering her shame. So they expose for the entire world to see the shame of Roman Catholicism. Let me show you here what happens. When I preach six messages about Roman Catholicism, how many people do I influence? You come and hear me, and I hope most of you agree with me. I think that you probably do, and perhaps you're armed to go out and meet some Roman Catholic and tell them the truth. But all in all, I don't really have very much influence. I know that the Holy Spirit takes his word and he uses it the way that he wants to use it. So I'm really not, he's the one with the influence, and I don't really want that kind of influence. That's not what I'm talking about. But for every preacher like me, there's one in a hundred, or like me, there's, there's one in a hundred of those, one in a thousand, whatever it might be. And there are a thousand others, 999 others out of those thousand that would lick the boots of Roman Catholicism. And the reason they do it is because it is a huge system and they don't want to make waves. And so you take leaders like Billy Graham and Robert Schuller and Rick Warren. They are not going to announce from their pulpits that the Pope is an antichrist. They don't believe it anyway, but if they did, they wouldn't say anything about it because that would hurt their popularity. Now, thank God we have... Some people who do have influence around the country, somebody like John MacArthur, who has never been afraid to go on radio or television and say exactly what he thinks of Roman Catholicism. I thank the Lord for that. But the problem here is I don't have much influence. I can't really expose a corrupt, perverted killing machine like Roman Catholicism. And a single world leader can't do that either. If you take the President of the United States, he's not going to say anything about the Pope because if he does, it's political suicide. And the majority will not believe this. You take things like the scandals in Roman Catholicism, the the pedophilic scandals that they're having right now, you just wait a while and it'll die down and people will forget about it and people still go back to the Roman Catholic Church like nothing ever happened. Business as usual. But what happens if you have ten rulers and they cover the entire globe with their influence? They have control over all the media They have control, or they're in power, I should say, with the guy that the world loves. And he has powers like lies that he uses and demonic supernatural activity. And so these ten kings begin to tell the world that the popes and the bishops and the cardinals never had any power over the dead. That purgatory was all a plan, just an invention to make money. Prayers for the dead are dead prayers. Forgiveness of sin is a ruse, the rosary, the mass, that's nothing but hocus-pocus. And the only thing that it ever did, all it ever accomplished, was to keep a bunch of greedy old men in power. So what will happen when the scandals come to light? When the records are brought out and everybody begins to see what the Roman Catholic Church has hidden for so many years? 
What would happen when people find out that their children were abused and nobody really knew about it because it was all covered up? I would suspect that what we see today coming out is just a small tip of the iceberg of what's gone on. And what happens when men find out that what was done in confessionals with their wives wasn't really all about confession? And what will happen when they open up the scores of convents and they find out there their skeletons of aborted babies as has been reported by Roman Catholic or, or by former Roman Catholic priest. Well, when those that are trusted begin to expose, then the evidence of it becomes so overwhelming that this news ricochets around the world. Every TV station, every radio station, all the talk shows, the internet blogs, when the topic of discussion is always and only this the perversions of Roman Catholicism and how that these ten kings must get rid of her because that's the only way that their new, their new federation of nations is going to survive, then they're going to convince the world that this insidious whore, this apostate church must be destroyed. That's what will happen. So the skirts are raised and the nakedness appears. And what do they do? Thirdly, they devour her. There's a feeding frenzy that takes place. The cathedrals are stormed. The gold is stripped from the walls. The treasuries are raided. The college of cardinals becomes a collection of corpses. The priests in the parishes are run down. And verse 16 says, they eat her flesh. And those are words that actually mean they tear out her entrails. Like a bunch of wild animals that feast on roadkill. This is how she's treated. And you know they're so appropriate. It is so appropriate because this is God's vengeance. It's vengeance upon Roman Catholicism that has done the very same to so many people. I mean, the Pope's incited violence of hatred against Bible believers, and so you had those massacres like we talked about a couple of three weeks ago at St. Bartholomew's, St. Bartholomew's Day. But now the tables are turned, and we notice here in verse number 16, it says, they burn her with fire. That's one of Rome's favorite methods of torture and killing, burning people with fire. Burn them at the stake. And how many real believers, the righteous, died because they would not relent. They would not give up their faith. And so there are thousands and thousands that have been recorded through history burned at the stake of Roman Catholicism. And death by fire is also a Babylonian method, isn't it? And the Roman church has its roots in the cult worship of Babylon. And what Babylon loved to do was to roast God's people. Nebuchadnezzar said, make the fire seven times hotter when he threw in those three Hebrew children. So this is very appropriate vengeance here. The fire comes back to haunt Roman Catholicism. So these kings that hate the hate the whore and hate this hierarchy of these vile, wicked men, they set her on fire. So here we find Rome is stripped of its authority, it's stripped of its influence, stripped of its wealth, the coffers are raided, and the political system, the ones that she helped to put in power are the ones who do it. And as they do it, it'll be just like God says in Psalm chapter 2, God will laugh when he has them in derision. Now that brings me thirdly, to the decree of the Almighty. Verse number 17. For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. For God hath put it in their hearts. So these kings gleefully go about this destruction of the whore and they think it's all their idea. 
They're safely in control is what they think. The Federation was their idea and joining up with the Antichrist, that was a savvy, suave political move. And they have no idea that it's actually God that's rapidly moving them to a great supper where the whole shebang will become carnage. Glance over to chapter 19, verse 17 for just a moment. Revelation 19, verse 17. It says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Back in chapter 17, verse number 14, it says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now let's break all that down so we can finish out the 17th chapter. First, I want you to see the pattern that God uses. God's pattern is to direct the nations to do what he wants them to do. Now, if you weren't a Bible student, a very good one, you might hear someone talking about Israel, and you would hear about them being shoved around by their enemies. You would hear about Egyptians and Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians and Romans, and you would hear about how they beat up on Israel, how they took God's people into captivity, how they made their lives miserable. And a poor Bible student would probably come to the conclusion that Israel's God was not very powerful. He's incapable of protecting his children. And you wouldn't understand that there is not one of those nations that ever lifted a finger against Israel that God did not push their buttons to do so. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. It'd be good for us to be able to read this entire chapter. You should do it later. But the first verse, let me tell you what's happening here as we go through in Leviticus 26. The first verse is a severe warning against worshiping idols. And then following that are directions about keeping commandments like the Sabbath and making the sacrifices and all the blessings that would come if God's people were faithful to do what God says. There were promises of timely rains and abundant crops. There would be protection from their enemies. They would have peace. They would be powerful. God said that five Israelites would put a hundred of their enemies to flight. He said that... uh, Ten, or rather, he said that a hundred could defeat ten thousand of the enemies. And didn't that happen? Do you remember how that happened with Gideon? Three hundred soldiers defeated this vastly superior army of Midian. Well, that all that goes on down to verse number fourteen. Then you come to verse fifteen, and here comes the consequences of disobedience. And you can peruse the verses that come after that, and you'll find that each of the consequences is a reversal of the blessings that were given in the first part of the chapter. But then you come down to verse number 25, and it says, I, this is God speaking, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And we are, when ye are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you, and ye shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Let me explain to you what that means. The sword actually means the armies of their invading neighbors. The pestilence is a plague that would weaken them so much that these armies would come in and with hardly a fight, they would be able to take over Israel. Now the point here is that there is no nation that ever dominated Israel because it was their idea. God has a pattern to use the nations as he pleases. Now there's a very interesting passage that we read in the book of Jeremiah in a particular place where 
The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar was used by God. This king of Babylon that, that hated God's people, God used him for his purposes. And we read this to you. Uh, this is about invading Egypt. In Jeremiah 43, verse number 8, Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah in Tapanes, saying, Take great stones in thine hand, and hide them in the clay in the brick kiln, which is at the entry of Pharaoh's house in Tapanes, in the sight of the men of Judah. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadrezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, my servant, and will set his throne upon these stones that I have hid, and he shall spread his royal pavilion over them. Let me stop there just a minute. A couple of things I want you to notice. That he says, do this in the sight of the men of Judah. And the reason was to show them that God was in control of everything that's happening here. But also, just as a point of interest to you, he says, send and take Nebuchadrezzar. And I just want to point out the spelling there. Only in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel do we find this spelling of the name. And you say, well, is that significant? I don't know. I'm going to leave that for you to find out because I don't know either. Most of the time, it's Nebuchadnezzar. It refers to the same person. But only in Jeremiah and Ezekiel do you find Nebuchadnezzar. So you figure it out. Verse number 11. And when he cometh, that's Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt and deliver such as for death to death and such as for captivity to captivity and such as for the sword to the sword. So God says, there are some that I will kill, and Nebuchadnezzar is my servant to kill them. There are some that are going to be taken into captivity. He's my servant to take the ones in captivity. I say to take into captivity. Some are reserved for the sword, and some are not. And Nebuchadnezzar is under the control of God to do exactly what he wants. So we see here that according to God's pattern, he moves these ten kings against the great whore. All of the time, they think it's their idea to destroy ecclesiastical Babylon. But this is God's vengeance. It's God's vengeance on this wicked system of Catholicism that has been a den of thieves and a house of murderers for centuries. Now, the second thing that we see here is the purpose that God fulfills. Why does he do all of this? And the purpose in verse number 14. God brings them to war. The kingdom of the Antichrist and the tribulation period, none of that's Satan's idea. This is all God that brings it about. So God is preparing them for that great supper that I mentioned a moment ago. And his purpose in this is to establish his righteous kingdom upon the earth. And to do that, in order for God to have one kingdom of righteousness ruling over all, God has to move all of the other nations out of the way. He has to remove all other governments from the world. And they help him in this, don't they? All of the world's government come together. They're broken down. They give up their sovereignty to the Antichrist. And then all that God has to do is crush one government. And he disintegrates all government, human government, forever. Now we saw God's hand moving when we looked at this same event in chapter 16. So look over there for just a minute. Chapter 16, verse number 12 It says there, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty." Now, there is another interesting thing, isn't it? God uses the spirit of devils 
And they perform miracles, it says. And what do, they, what do they do with those miracles? They convince all of these kings to march toward Armageddon. And the scripture says that God is gathering them to the battle. See, God's very smart. He's a very smart general. He doesn't have to fight a thousand skirmishes all over in so many different places. God gathers them all into one place. And then with one fell swoop of his hand, he destroys them all. Now, the object of all of this, the purpose of why God is doing it, is his kingdom. Verse 14 says, God will overcome them. And God's armies are made up of the holy angels and those who are called and chosen and faithful. So here you have the elect angels joining with God's elect people. They are his chosen people. And you remember the the promise that God made to Israel? It's all throughout the word of God. The promise that he made to Israel is that they would live in a righteous kingdom upon the earth. He promised that David's throne would be established forever. And the one who is sitting upon this throne is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous eternal king. And so David's kingdom is established forever exactly as God says. Now, someone asked me the other day, they said, why don't we just stay in heaven? Why why do we come back to the earth? Uh, Do we want to come back to the earth? And the answer to that question is, oh, yes, we do want to come back to this earth. And the reason that we do is because Christ's heart is our heart. Whatever he desires to do, we want to do. And so most assuredly, we do want to come back to this earth because the Bible says the earth is God's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's. He made people to inherit the earth as he did to inherit heaven. And did you know that all you have to do to to figure that out, there's many other ways that you could do this, but one of the ways is go back to the Sermon on the Mount. And there you find in Matthew 5, verse 3, in the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Two verses later, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So as God's people, we get both. We get heaven and the earth, because they belong to God. Now finally, the principle that God establishes. What is God's principle? So what do we learn from the destruction of ecclesiastical Babylon? What do we learn from the Antichrist? What do we learn from the Ten Kings? And what do we learn from even the devil himself? What we learn is that God controls everything. The righteous do his bidding, and the evil do as well. I want you to listen to what God says in Isaiah 45. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee. Though thou hast not known me, I girded thee, though you haven't known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Verse number 7, that's a very difficult verse, isn't it? That's a tough one. I make peace and create evil. That doesn't mean that God creates moral evil. That could never be. And this is one of those scriptures where you definitely do not want to pull it out of its context because you'll end up with all kinds of strange things. How does God create evil? What he's talking about here in the context, it means that he creates wars. Evil stands for wars, and it stands for all the calamities that God brings upon people. He uses those for his purposes. And God also creates the evil of punishment. I mean, punishment is not a good thing, is it? Punishment is an evil thing considered in one way. And God created punishment. 
He created a hell for people to die and go to because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. So it seems here that things are totally out of control in the tribulation. But what we actually see by reading the 17th chapter is that God is using Satan to chastise Satan. Everything evil is under God's control. So ecclesiastical Babylon rises, it reaches its zenith, but then it outlives its usefulness. And by that I mean it outlives the usefulness for God's purposes. And so God gets rid of ecclesiastical Babylon. You notice how he does this? Never says here that God is the one who does it. It says the ten kings do it. Now God does destroy it. But what he's done is he's used evil men to do his purposes. So here you find evil combats evil. And friends, it takes a sovereign God to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we spend in your word tonight. And Lord, if we ever draw anything from this, the the main thing that we must is that you are in control of everything that takes place in this world. We need not fear. We need not fret about anything because we can put everything into your hands or leave them in your hands, recognize that they're in your hands. And then we know, Lord, that you always do all things well. You have a plan and you have a purpose for everything that takes place. And we thank you, Lord, for your plans and purposes. And most of all, that you have included us who are believers in those plans and purposes. What a great blessing it is to serve the great King, the Lord of righteousness. Bless our people tonight for having heard the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.